God created both men and women bearing the image of God. God's design for marriage and procreation, making it possible for those who do get married to enjoy a oneness which is beyond description. Man needed a helper, woman, a perfect match for man, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, to help him propagate the human race. Male created first, and then female from the man, confirmed clearly in the second chapter of Genesis, and utterly at odds with evolutionary explanation. The man or Adam created first is significant. Males are XY chromosomes. The Y chromosome produces males, and the X chromosome produces females. Females are XX chromosomes. Male created out of female, if it had gone that way, would not provide the logical chromosomal origin. What God has told us he did follows and makes sense. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God blessed them and God said to them, being in his image, man and woman have dominion and personhood and the ability to know God and to reproduce themselves by his grace and fill the earth and indeed, verse 29, to taste and smell in the consuming of fruits and vegetables. As image bearers, we can hear and receive God's word. No other living creature can do that. This means that we are, as human beings, responsible, moral, spiritual beings. The continental divide, if you will, is the question of God's grace. If by His grace we respond, we can live in accord with His word. By His grace, we can lead nuanced lives of the deepest morality. His grace can enable us to hold forth His Word, and we can live with Him eternally. God created human beings to be the recipients. Now I go back to the beginning of verse 28. He created human beings to, the re to be the recipients of joy and blessing from His hand. God did not just speak a blessing of some sort of ceremonial consecration or some verbal formula of encouragement when this was said by him. He confers well-being on human beings. He pours out his goodness specifically on us. Of course, his goodness is poured out on all creation, but in a very special way, he pours it out on the human beings that he has created. He causes us to prosper and enables us 
to have true happiness. God wants us to enjoy Him and the rich goodness of His creation. We read in His Word, God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. The next phrase, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Man is the propagator of human life, and this, I would remind you, comes to us as a command. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be involved, those whom God leads to marriage, be involved in procreating, and all should support procreating, producing others in God's image. A miraculous thing, only possible through the work of our Lord. Marriage, sexual relations, having children are all therefore to be viewed as good, part of God's original good creation. Those who teach that the original sin was somehow sexual or that sex is inherently evil, sordid, sinful, ugly, are simply completely wrong. Sex is part of God's very good creation within the proper ordained context of the marriage of one man and one woman. This does of course not mean that everyone should marry. It is God's will for some to remain single. It does not mean that all marriages will in fact produce children. Children are a gift from God. He doesn't always give that gift to every single marriage. But having children is a core purpose of marriage for humanity as a whole. All marriages should be open to children and not actively seek to prevent childbirth. Unless, in context in our verse, we somehow judge that we have filled the earth. There has been a lot of fear-mongering throughout my life suggesting that we have overpopulated the earth and humanity is therefore in serious trouble because of that. Fanatical evolutionist Paul Ehrlich wrote The Population Bomb in 1968, in which he advocated forced abortion, saying that in the 1970s, the world would undergo widespread famine and hundreds of millions would starve to death. I survived the 1970s. Based on evolutionary misunderstanding, if mankind or Homo sapiens have been around for hundreds of thousands of years, then certainly in recent time we are witnessing a population explosion. As it, and then it, on that basis it becomes easy to sell fears such as Ehrlich peddled. But evolution is false. Mankind created about 6,000 years ago with normal population growth leads to today's population figure. 
Various calculations have shown that the entire world population could live in Texas or say in England or other places wherein each person would be enabled to have a decent sized acreage to live upon. Our alleged population problems are actually more economic and political than real. Socialist economics do not lead to good. They do, in fact, lead to food shortages, no matter the size of the population. But free market practices, in accordance with Scripture, do just the opposite. Obedience to biblical principles of economics, including private property and free enterprise, would eliminate all concerns of overpopulation. The creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply should still be obeyed, especially by God's people. We next notice in verse 28 that man, male and female, is to rule over, subdue, or have dominion over all the living creatures, stated that way, on earth. Man is to be in charge over the fish, the birds, and every other living thing, we read, that moves. Man was created to be the king of the earth. Psalm 8, verses 6 to 8. Psalm 115, verse 116. Man has a calling to exercise God-given dominion under God's authority, under God's direction, to subdue, not destroy, but to subdue and care for the earth and all living creatures in it, man has this responsibility as God's steward. Notice that the implication here would certainly mean that man and woman are to be co-regents under God over all the earth and over all life on earth. Explicitly, we are told in this verse, all living creatures on earth. I don't think that's the extent of the dominion, but that's the statement here. All living creatures on earth, wherein, again, I remind you in the context of Genesis 1, plant life is not considered living in the same sense as animals. Man and woman are stewards together before God as royal figures, vice-regents over creation. Was there a hierarchy of man and woman intended in Eden? Yes. But this does not eliminate a sense of ruling together over the rest of creation. There is a vast dignity attached to being created in God's image, though marred by the fall, and thus in our fallenness, only a grisly shadow, if you will, of the created self. This, of course, complicates our exercise of dominion over the creation. We are to rule, subduing creation, as God has commanded. But in a world where the creation is cursed and human beings are fallen, there will be difficulty. There will be challenges in exercising that dominion wisely and properly. So where is our hope? Well, our hope is always where it is. It is in Christ, 
who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the exact image of God's being, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Jesus' incarnation resulted in a formal correspondence with the first Adam by virtue of his humanity. But Christ, the second Adam, did not sin. So he can make all those who are in him alive. And that's just not alive physically, but alive spiritually. As he was the one who formed the universe, did Christ. He can restore form to our broken lives in a fallen world. And more, he who filled the earth with light, the seas with fish, the air with birds, the land with animals. He specializes in giving his righteousness to sinful, vacuous humanity. He only has to say the word and it is done. Blaise Pascal said there is an abyss within fallen man that can only be filled by an infinite, immutable, that is, non-changing object, which is to say it can only be filled by God himself. Do you recognize this vacuum? Is there emptiness within you whenever you turn from our Lord? Some uncomfortable space due to your sin. If so, all you have to do is come to him believing and say, here is my cup, Lord. Fill it up, and he will. How are we to rule over creation? We're given the command. We are to do so. It isn't spelled out here in the first chapter, but throughout God's word it is spelled out. We are to do so according to God's law, according to God's commands, New Testament and Old, and in submission to God's sovereignty. Since the fall, we all too often, I speak now of all human beings, we all too often seek to rule or glorify ourselves and not God, as evidenced dramatically at the Tower of Babel. But as Isaiah 43 and verse 7 tells us, we are created for God's glory, not our own. Our glory only comes in right relationship with our God, the one true God. In sin, however, we often exploit the earth, its resources, and its creatures. Thus, environmentalists have a point. Polluting the earth is wrong. But God intended for man to rule over the natural world. This does not mean that human beings have a right to abuse nature or to inflict unnecessary suffering on animals. But it does mean that the world and other living creatures were created for human use. Man rules the animal kingdom and the whole earth. This, I would remind you, is in stark contrast to the pagan worldview in which nature rules over man. 
And man worships nature. Pagans believe that in the face of nature's great power, all that man can do is offer sacrifices and perform incantations. In paganism, man is subject to nature. Man ruling over nature, the biblical understanding, opened the way to finding, for instance, cures for diseases. It's no coincidence that it is in Western culture, Western world essentially, where we have seen the development of modern medicine. In order to develop medicine, it was first required that man understands his role of ruling over nature, not praying to natural forces or seeking to placate them. Diseases like smallpox and polio were eliminated in those parts of the world heavily influenced by this biblical worldview. Man is not called notice. Man is not called to have dominion over other human beings. Noticing that it is vitally important, noticing that rather, is vitally important in deciding all manner of bioethical questions. Humans, unlike animals, are made in God's image and thus are never to be treated as objects. Therein we see that various activities, such as unjust slavery, abortion, human embryonic stem cell research, and artificial human cloning are all evil. They are all improperly placing man in dominion over other human beings made in God's image. That error does not remove or displace the proper God-established authority relationships among human beings in marriages, families, churches, communities, and nations. But those are not exercises of ruling over or subduing or dominion over, in that sense, other human beings, which God never sanctioned in the way that man is to exercise that dominion over all other living creatures. Man was intended by God to be the sovereign of the planet. God told man to subdue the planet, take dominion, rule over everything God had placed on the earth for good and for God's glory. That instruction was intended for the whole human race, not just Adam, indicated by the plural pronoun in verse 26, let them rule. This prior even to the creation of Eve. It is a broad dominion over every living creature. All of humanity united together in love, ruling wisely and for good over all living creatures and living beings and over the earth itself. And Adam's first task, Genesis 2, we'll talk more about it when we get there, Genesis 2, verses 19 to 20. Adam's first task related to dominion was to look at every kind of bird and animal and name it, indicating his God-given authority over them. God had, of course, already named day 
and night and heaven and earth and sea. His prerogative, his privilege as creator to name what he creates. But God nevertheless delegated the naming of the birds and the animals to man, man's first duty as ruler of the world. God made man to be the cultivator, the gardener, if you will, of Eden and beyond. Man was to keep it a joyous task in a curse-free environment without weeds or thorns or thistles. Man ruling over and subduing and caring for the earth without sin. That was the vision. Nothing like it exists in other faiths or worldviews. Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism and even some forms of what has been called Christian mysticism tend to neglect the garden, the earth, viewing it as a sort of deity in itself, not to be tampered with. Materialist, technological, industrialism tends to destroy the garden for short-sighted economic purposes and alleged gains. Ultra-environmentalists, greens, elevate the garden above the legitimate needs of humanity, sacrificing human significance and failing to bring to fruition what man can accomplish with the remarkable capacities of the created order. God's command to rule, to have dominion, teaches man to respect and care for nature so as to shape it in a direction that will reflect the beauty, the order, and the glory of God. When man fell in sin, he abdicated some of his God-given authority. When he yielded to Satan, he forfeited the dominion that God had given him over the earth. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't still attempts at an, an ability to exercise dominion, but he forfeited it in another sense. Jesus repeatedly referred to Satan as the ruler of this world, man's intended role. But man's sin, in effect, forfeited dominion to the devil. Jesus will return, and he will retake dominion and establish himself as the ruler directly of this world. He already, of course, defeated the powers of evil at the cross. Having disarmed principalities, powers, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, Colossians 2 and verse 15. And upon his return to earth, he will receive his kingdom and establish it worldwide and reign on an earthly throne in his glorified human body. Therefore, in the person of Christ, humanity and alongside him, humanity will exercise its full dominion and even more as God has intended it in Eden. Living as we do in a world under the curse of sin, we struggle with subduing the garden of God fully and properly. Weeds, pests, harmful bacteria, not to mention our fallen human nature, keep the task 
of subduing the earth unperfected and in that sense out of full reach. Man was given dominion over the earth, but in our fallen condition, the tiniest microbes can undo us. But even fallen humanity manages to take dominion, if you will, to an amazing degree, devising technology, for instance, that allows us to, to, rather, to cultivate only a fraction of the earth's potential farmland and still grow enough crops to feed the world. Technology that enables us to travel to the moon, develop amazing, amazing communications networks, travel across vast continents and oceans in a few hours, build huge dams and create large reservoirs, devising power systems that harness the energy of the universe and put it to humanity's benefit, and develop medical technology that prolongs life. Even in fallenness, human beings are wonderful creatures in the image of our Creator. We, of course, do not yet see all things subjected to Christ. There is still war and disease and poverty. Most of the technology that man has developed, often to good ends, has resulted in new problems while attempting, and many times, solving old ones. And man is unable to subdue his own sinful testimony, test, tendencies on his own. Christ, who is fully God and fully man, the perfect man, will do what fallen man has been unable to do. He will destroy all the works of the devil, 1 John 3 and verse 8. He will even render the devil powerless, Hebrews 2 and verse 14. The victory was already sealed when Jesus rose from the dead. We are simply now awaiting its culmination. God's Word tells us that the redeemed will reign with Christ in an earthly kingdom for 1,000 years, Revelation 20 and verse 4. The earth will in many ways be restored as a paradise. Major elements of the curse will be reversed. We read, the wilderness and the desert will be glad. The Arabah, or desert, will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will blossom profusely and rejoice. Isaiah 35, verses 1 and 2. Animals will no longer be a threat to one another or man. Isaiah 11, verses 6 to 9. Humanity's normal life expectancy will be such that if someone dies or does not live to 100 years old, that person will be thought to be accursed. Isaiah 65 and verse 20. During the millennial kingdom, humanity will finally get a taste of what life in Eden could have been. With Christ reigning and the effects of sin in many ways mitigated, earthly life will be as close to paradise as a world tainted still with sin will ever know. And finally, when the millennial kingdom is complete, the heavens and the earth will pass away and will be replaced by a new creation, Revelation 21, verse 1. The world untainted by sin or sorrow of any kind and even, will even surpass Eden in its delights.
and God in the person of Christ Jesus, a man who is God, will have dominion over it. And his saints finally sharing the perfect dominion that man was originally created to enjoy. Will you be there? Do you want to be there? Have you put your faith and trust in Christ alone, submitting to his lordship in every aspect of your life? Genesis now at 29, verse, chapter 1, verse 29. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you, except, of course, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Just as life itself is a gift from God, so is the food that we eat to sustain ourselves. Originally, man and animals were given a vegetarian diet. Animals were not sanctioned to be eaten until after the flood, Genesis 9 and verse 3. There being no death before the fall, God's given diet was vegetarian. This is a further indication that vegetation is not considered alive in the same sense as animals and human beings who all possessed a nephish or a soul. Not only evolutionists, but old earth creationists face the problem of millions of years of living creatures on earth. This means that animals were eating animals well before God gave man and animals a vegetarian-only diet on the sixth day of creation, the day in which they were created. Finally, verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So the whole of God's creation was very good. No death, no evil, no evolution, no survival of the fittest, no sin, no fallenness. Everything was very good. The entire completed work of creation was perfect, fully conforming to God's will, everything as it should be. Therefore, we cannot but understand that the material realm is good. Those like the early Gnostics who say that only what is spiritual is good and that which is physical is inherently evil are wrong. Creation is not evil. It is not a sin to enjoy the good gifts that God shares with us. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Verse 31 is also a strong denial of the theory of evolution. All the way up to man's existence, everything is good. Everything is very good. No struggle for existence, no disease, no pollution, no physical calamities, no disorder, no sin, no death. Even Satan's rebellion and fall came after the six days of creation, Satan being himself a created being. 
Romans 8 and verse 22 describes the condition of the world, not just man, post-fall or post-Genesis 3. The whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. That's a fallen condition and distinctly not the way God originally created the world. Thus, the fossil record which speaks loudly of death and destruction, must have been laid down sometime after the fall. But there is no time after the fall for millions and millions of years that evolution posits for that fossil record. The only explanation that makes sense for the geologic column is the biblical account of the flood of Noah. Finally, one might wonder, some have, well, why didn't God create everything instantly, in just a moment, in the beginning? He could have done that. He is, after all, capable of all things. Why did God take six full days? Doing it over six days with the many details that he gives us there in the first chapter of Genesis shows forth God's glory clearly and displays the orderliness of his creation. It also, and this is vitally important, establishes a pattern for man's work week, Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. Perhaps also he did it over six literal days so that we would be very clear about who created all of that which we see, and something, something of how he did it, but also so that we would not quickly deny this as evolutionists do. God's creation points to the reality of his existence, the denial of which is at the core of our sinfulness, Romans chapter 1. If God did not create a perfectly good world as he said he did, then there was no fall and thus no need for Christ to come and save us and we would therefore be hopeless in our miserable existence with no future to look forward to. If the truths revealed in Genesis 1 are not true, the whole of biblical truth collapses without a foundation and we are without hope. There are lots of Christians who believe the gospel, who believe so many things, especially in the New Testament, but discount what is stated here in the beginning of Genesis. If you take that out, if that's but a myth, then in reality, the whole collapses and does not make sense. It does not follow. But the word of God is true. Though every man deny it and be found a liar, the foundation is secure. We have real hope. Life eternal is available in Jesus Christ. Faith in him is not in vain. Much more to be said about this, but it will await the next time and times as we march on through the Genesis text. Let's pray. Lord, in contrast to the many myths of creation that exist in 
cultures all over the world. Your account is so clearly historical, so clearly true, so clearly right, and stands in great distinction to all these others. Your account makes sense with what we observe, and thus it is to be believed. Simple, straightforward, basic truths, the denial of which lead to chaos and tragic immorality, as we see in abortion and in the gender debate in our time. God, preserve and protect us through your word and our adherence to it by faith, a faith that is based on good evidence and a sound foundation. We stand in a good position to witness to a world that needs to know you. We can be confident in these things as we share them with a lost world and especially as we share our Savior Jesus with that lost world. To that end, may we be encouraged and strengthened by what we learn here in the opening foundational chapters of your truth. In Christ we pray. Amen. Rise, if you will, again for the benediction. Surely my prayer is that one of the results of our study is that you will be encouraged and strengthened in your faith in these things that we can believe directly, literally, and in a very straightforward way. Go forth in that confidence and share God's word of truth and his Savior with a world that needs to hear to pardon his peace. Amen.